welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction Welcome to TALC, Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills. My name is Avril Danchak and I'm a GP and medical educator. This podcast is brought to you with the support of Health Education England Northwest and their talented GP educators. I'm joined by two of them today and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Anne. Hi, I'm Anne Thomas. I'm a GP in Manchester and a primary care medical educator in Manchester. Julian. Hi, I'm Julian Tomkinson. I'm a GP and GP trainer in Bolton and a primary care medical educator in Manchester. Thank you. This particular podcast is part of the module called TALC Effective Methods for Teaching Consultation Skills. We're going to explore some of the educational methods which use experiential learning to improve consultation skills. This is covered in detail in the written chapters called Feedback Makes Perfect But Practice Makes Permanent, Making Skills Rehearsals Effective, and Can We Learn to Love Role Play? So I'm going to ask Julian to begin, or is it the other way around, Julian? I think it's the other way around, Avril. Okay, yeah, go on. <laughs> Crack on. Yeah, Avril, can you explain what experiential learning actually is and why we aim to use it for consultation skills education? Well, experiential learning is really learning by doing. So to make this effective, there are actually three components. And these are usually called the setup, the experience itself, and the debrief afterwards. Now, the setup is what you do before the experiential learning experience, perhaps preparing a scenario or explaining to participants what's going to happen. The experience is something they actually do themselves and experience in real time during the training session. And the debrief is the discussion afterwards. Now, for example, this could be trying out a new consultation in a teaching session, like doing it at a simulation or a lab. You can experiment, try things out, play around with things in a way that you can't do with real patients or in real consultations. Afterwards, the debrief helps participants to think about what's happened. It means they can analyse what worked or what didn't work, and it develops the learning. So a carefully worked out setup allows the participants to experience something for themselves. And the debriefing afterwards is the learning points which come from discussion, reflection and analysis. So Julian, I'm thinking about the debriefing discussions after skills rehearsals here. As an educator, how do you approach those discussions afterwards? Yeah, thanks, Abra. And I think, as you say, preparation is is the key to making these exercises really effective. And so, really, if the educator has a clear idea of what the skill or the skills that are being practiced are, then it, it really helps get the most out of the exercise. Once the feedback's uh, running, the educator can praise and encourage when the skills have been identified and come out. But then the educator can also pick up when things don't go well and then try and understand what actually went on, what happened, why did someone struggle? And it may be that it felt awkward or clunky. If these feelings come out, it's really important to be positive about those and and sort of share the experience that when learning a new skill to make progress, things often do feel clunky at the start. And actually by practicing, this really helped make that clunkiness become smooth and effective and efficient. It can be really helpful to reinforce the idea that experiential learning is a bit artificial, but it's better to be artificial simulation and then take your skills to the consultation we often bring the analogy of learning cpr i mean we all accept that we practice resuscitation on dummies 
because when you encounter a real cardiac arrest, you really need to have practiced those skills. But we're happy to accept that. So we sort of bring that along to lie against this idea of practicing the skills of the consultation. I think that's a really helpful comparison, actually, Anne. I've sometimes heard educators introduce a skills rehearsal if it's a bit of a chore rather than a real opportunity. So, Anne, I'm wondering if you think the attitude of the educator themselves affects how the benefits of skills rehearsals can come out. I mean, yeah, I do. I think it's really important, actually, to model a positive attitude to practising the skills in isolation. We really try and reinforce just how useful it is to practise skills and get feedback from your peers or from your trainers. But we also impress on our learners that this isn't about role play for the clinicians. This is about being real. This is about responding as themselves, but it's just in a simulated situation where they can safely practice the skills. We've done this together, Julian. What do you think? That's right. I think the key thing is to share with the clinicians that are doing the work how doing these skills rehearsal means that they really get to experience what it's like to be a patient and how that can help them build empathy and understanding it in a situation that they may be faced in real life. And for example, if the clinician being a patient doesn't feel listened to or if they had a bad experience, it, it can give them opportunity to practice being somebody who's angry or very upset or bereaved. And I think by explaining the benefits and really helping them prepare, even before they start the skills rehearsal, is actually prepare and try and put themselves into a, the patient's mind, how they would actually feel you know, in real life. That really helps get a maximum benefit from the exercise. It's really interesting that because this thing about artificiality is something that often comes up. And yet what you're saying there is that by artificially putting yourself in a situation that you're not in, perhaps somebody who's angry or bereaved or whatever it is, that you can learn a bit from that by finding yourself in that situation. But also the clinician who's dealing with that situation, they're not acting at all, are they? They're just responding in the way that they would do as a clinician and practicing some skills in isolation. So I'm thinking about the preparation here because you've mentioned that several times that when you're preparing scenarios for skills rehearsal you have to think it through quite carefully. Julian do you have any tips for educators who want to make scenarios effective? Again being prepared and having a really clear set intention about what skills are being practiced and then really making the scenario or the exercise fairly simple so only the skills that are needed to be practiced are actually coming out and being focused on. It's important to have the relevant detail for the person playing the patient to read and keep that reasonably short. The other thing is really to emphasize the difference between a skills rehearsal and role play. So just practicing the particular skill here, not the whole consultation. That makes sense. I think from what I've heard from examiners and people who help people to pass exams in consultation skills, that often in small peer groups, people do role play together where perhaps they'd be better just focusing on individual skills and practicing those. I'd like to pick up the issue about role play, though. Role play is more complicated. It's when we do a whole consultation rather than focusing on a specific skill. And sometimes we do want to practice a more difficult scenario like breaking good news or perhaps a triadic consultation where there's more than one person consulting. And in that situation, I think the setup needs even more careful preparation. The scenario itself needs to be clear and free of unnecessary details. But in a group setting, you can make this role play very effective by doing more preparation even before the role play starts. So for example, when you've got your scenario, divide your group into those people who are going to be the clinicians, those who are going to be the patients, and those who are going to be 
observing the skills, put them actually in separate groups and give the patients their scenario to read, ask them to discuss what that patient is thinking and feeling, ask the observers to look at a checklist of skills so that they're discussing what they're looking out for. And then the clinicians group can discuss their clinical information and only then set up the role play in threes with each three having a clinician, a patient and an observer. This does take longer, but it makes for a more effective experience because everyone's thought about the scenario and discussed it from a particular point of view before they start. Anne, I'm wondering what you think about rotating roles so that um, scenarios are repeated and everybody gets to be a patient, a clinician and an observer. Yeah, definitely. I think we all agree that that actually is really helpful. It can be really useful to be in all the roles. Seeing the same scenario from different points of view is helpful. And also as the scenario is repeated, then skills tend to improve, which is good role modelling. Having slightly different scenarios each time can also be helpful because that means that clinicians get to see how different patients might respond in a similar setup. And particularly, we've talked about this, but being the observer is immensely useful because, I mean, first, we've talked a lot about giving feedback and the skills um, required for that. So it gives practice for giving feedback and also helps because the observer often sees some good skills that they can then go on to copy. That's helpful, particularly that issue about giving feedback, because if clinicians are getting together in small peer groups to practice their skills, they really need to know how to give effective feedback. When we use a specific checklist of skills, it's a way to focus the observer's attention on the actual behaviours we want to see, isn't it? So it makes the feedback more objective and more helpful. So it, it means that people can, for example, instead of saying, you really seem to be listening, the observer can say, I noticed that you didn't interrupt the speaker. Then I heard you use a statement like, go on. On, or somewhere else they might say, I heard you use an open question. And if they need to give a different kind of feedback, instead of saying, oh, you weren't listening, which is rather pejorative, they can say, I noticed you interrupted the speaker to ask a closed question, which is a fact. And facts are friendly in this situation. And the checklist can help people to focus on the facts that they're looking for. They're not suitable for every situation checklist, but they can be helpful in focusing feedback around the important skills. So it sounds as though we're really arguing that having practical experiences in training sessions about consultation skills is useful. Practicing specific skills is helpful rather than trying to do whole consultations every time. But that where there are complex skill sets, a whole consultation needs quite a lot of preparation beforehand. There are full details of all these educational methods in the module TALC, Effective Methods for Teaching Consultation Skills. Every chapter has background information about the different teaching methods and details of how to use them and make them work effectively. There are practical examples and resources for educators, reading and references as well. Thank you, everybody. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.